Colloquium, Episode 6, The Monster That Wears Our Face, Mike Carey on Suicide Risk. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of Colloquium. My name is Marcus Ahn, and this is my comics creator interview podcast for Sequart. Last week, I had the pleasure of talking with Mike Carey. Mike is a British writer who is well-known for the critically acclaimed Vertigo series Lucifer, as well as his work on Hellblazer, Ultimate Fantastic Four, and his 73-issue run on the X-Men. Currently, Mike is writing the unwritten for Vertigo, and the horror story, Houses of the Holy, a comic designed for the Madefire app for iPad and iPhone. In May, Marvel Comics will release his original graphic novel, X-Men, No More Humans. Mike also has a number of film and TV projects in the works, which we talk a little bit about at the end of this cast, and he's written some great novels, including five books starring his freelance exorcist character, Felix Castor. His latest book, The Girl with All the Gifts, will hit British bookstores in January. For this cast, Mike and I chatted about Suicide Risk, his excellent superhero book published by Boom. I talked with Mike about the epic scope of the series, the possibility of a carryverse, and how real people would react if they ever got powers. Hi, Marcus. I really apologize about that. <laughs> no problem. I thought it was just some weird British thing. <laughs> no, it's some weird carry thing. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I'm glad that you could still talk. So let's talk about suicide risk. Okay. Uh, I want to tell you that I love the series, and I just reread all the issues again last night. Cool. And I found myself uh, enjoying them even more the second time around. That's really good to hear. Uh, the book has a lot going on. Superpowers, mysteries, gods, family, but how would you describe the series? Um, I think the mystery is a big part of it. You know, I think it's uh, it's a story that opens up um, layer on layer, like Chinese boxes. You know, you think you understand what's going on, and then there's a, another reveal, and it opens out in a different direction. Um, I think when it started out, a lot of people expected it would be like um, Gotham Central, that it would be primarily about cops in a superpowered world. And, you know, that wasn't really what we had planned. Um, the mystery of where the powers are coming from and why the powers come with the, the sort of weird um, baggage that they do in terms of, you know, memories and, and, uh, and or hallucinations, personality shifts and so on. That's at the heart of the book. And when that mystery is solved, um, there is, you know, there, there, there are um, consequences that will play out through the second and into the third year of the book's run. Mm -hmm. Leo will continue to be the protagonist, but um, other people's stories will also be showcased within that framework. 
Uh, well, you you mentioned that um, you know it started off it was pretty grounded in reality. Um, it seemed like it was going to be a cop book, and then it kind of just changed and became much bigger in scope. Probably starting with issue six. Yeah. Did you think that shift from that street level type book to this global crisis would catch people off guard? Um. Yes, I did. I I, I guess I was. Um... I wasn't quite prepared for how um, just how much the early reviews and coverage of the book would focus on the um, the sort of thin blue line uh, side of the equation. You know, the fact that Leo is a cop trying to uh, trying to sort of uh, hold some standard uh, of order and decency in in this world that's sort of um, being driven into chaos by by supervillains. So I, I I knew it would be a fake out. Uh, I didn't expect that it would throw people quite as uh, as radically as it did, but we have um, you know we have a lot of ground still to cover, a lot of big reveals still to come, and a lot of big changes in pace um, and tone still to come. Mm-hmm. Reading it all at once, it didn't catch me as off guard as the first time when you're reading it monthly. You know, I could see where you were kind of setting it up more. You know, you had planted the seeds that it was going to grow into something a little bit larger. Yeah, that, that there was a version of the story um, which I originally pitched to to Boom, uh, in which Leo was not the protagonist, in which there was no um, no solo protagonist, and the, and the book would sort of um, uh, be structured as a series of miniseries, each, each of them from a different point of view, and the big picture would build up gradually. Um, and it was in, in discussion with Matt that we decided that actually that would probably be too. I guess too alienating is the word. Mm-hmm. Um, you you need to have a um, a point of view character to follow through this maze because that uh, that there are so many um, so many stages to what's happening, or so many different angles on what's happening. So so having Leo as the um, as a common thread that binds the stories, but being able within that um, to to jump away uh, as we did with issue five and look at other people's situations um i think i think that 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 uh is probably the perfect formula it's kind of it's kind of what we did with lucifer you know lucifer was a very different book but um that that was sort of the structure that that i followed there that the arcs would be lucifer centric and then then they would be sort of uh, buffered by one-offs which would seem to be um you know, cutaways seem to be completely extraneous to the main story, but actually would illuminate the main story from different angles. Right. It's interesting that the original pitch was so different because the thing that I really like about the book is that it does follow Leo and you see how he interacts with his family. I mean, you feel like um, you know him and you you have that way in. The, the family is definitely at the heart of the book uh, and the family dynamic. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in the first issues setting that up. I, I think you need the sense of how um, how loving and how mutually supportive they are because obviously things at this point in the story are starting to go to hell. Um, and it's quite clear that uh, the marriage and the family are, are in peril. Um, there's a lot on the line for Leah. Um, and it, uh, it, continues to, it continues to escalate through the next arc as well. Yeah. I also liked in the first issue how you spent time uh, reflecting on how the deaths of the police officers um, affected Leo and the police department. 
thought that was really well done. Um, it made it seem like, um, you know, what he had to do really had a, a reason. Yes, because you need something big to counterbalance. Uh, he's, he's, he's obviously aware of the risk he's, um, he's taking, you know, both with his own life and with, uh, with his, indirectly with his family, with his family's well-being. So yes, you need, you need something big to put in the opposite scale. Um, mm-hmm. but the friendship with, you know, with John Ha, uh, the disabled officer had to, uh, had to be convincing as well. Mm-hmm. And why did you decide that you wanted to make the protagonist, Leo, a police officer? I think because of what that says about him as a person, about his, about his personality and about his motivation. Um, there's definitely, you know, by the time you get to the end of the second arc, it should be apparent that the the turning of... Um, of personalities that comes with the superpowers, the corruption um, or the the, you know, the going to the bad, whatever you want to call it, is more than just power corrupt. It's more than just a, a consequence of being able to um, fulfill your um, your every wish, uh, enact your fantasies, and so on. There's there's something else that is operating. Um, so I wanted I wanted a protagonist who would you know you you would believe in as somebody who um was a sort of a sort of moral a moral man um and a man who um has a has a sort of strong sense of duty so that uh, the, the changes in the changes that start to be to, to come um do present as a mystery rather than just oh well okay this is what happens when uh, when you're suddenly like god mhm well, um, early on, um, Leo's father-in-law, Matesh, makes a comment about all the people with superpowers being bad. And um, when I read the book again, I, I realized that there's really only one instance of anyone really using powers for good. In the first issue, you have uh, the superhero um, who gets killed pretty quickly. Extended remix, yeah. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, the powers are either used for evil or, in the case of Leo, in defense. Um, but mostly we see Leo being forced to use his powers in ways that um, further a criminal agenda. So I guess that's kind of a long way of asking if powers were actually available in real life. Do you think that most people would use them for evil or selfish reasons? Is Matesh right? Um, I don't think Matesh is 100% right, but I do think that you, know, you, you only have to look at what happens now in the real world and, and uh, how power, how temporal power is used by uh, is used by governments, uh, is used by um, authorities, you know, the, the, the people who are in power over us. We'll often do things that are appalling even while they believe that they're doing right. Um, so I, th- I think it's that. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily that if people had powers, they would use them for evil. It's just that um, everybody's perception of right and wrong is, is unique and, and personal to them. And, and uh, I think a world, a world in which people had um, superpowers would be, yeah, would, 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 they would be in danger of descending into chaos. The social contract would, um, might not survive. Hmm. If you had the opportunity to get powers, would you take them, Mike? Yes, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely, I would. Because, I, because everybody believes that uh, that they're on the side of the angels, don't they? Everybody believes that they would use their powers for good. 
I, I'd love to see what would happen if I got powers or some of my friends got powers, if it would really change them. Because I would think that I would be altruistic. I think I would try to help people, but you never know. Yeah, you would, you would, you would be tempted to cross this line and that line, and you know, you'd be bowled alive slowly. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy. It's like stealing music from the internet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's how it starts. All right. Well, so ultimately, Leo finds out that uh, the powers are being sold, and he finds the dealers, and he decides to take that plunge and, and get the powers. Um, but there's this learning curve to his new abilities, and you have a lot of great scenes in the book where Leo is um, with his family, and he's trying to figure out how his powers work, um, especially with his daughter, Tracy who dropped some science knowledge on him. Why did you decide to, you know, make his family so integral to the development of the powers? Um, I can't give a full answer to that without giving some spoilers for the third arc. Um, it's, again, you know, just looking at what we've, what we've learned so far, you know, Leo is now having memories of a completely different life um, in which he wasn't married, he had no children, he had a lover, um, but as far as we know, they had no children. In, in sort of taking on the powers, he has inadvertently put himself into, into a situation where he is going to be um, not just sort of drawn away from his family by physical necessity, um, as, as in nightmare scenario, but also psychologically um, estranged from them. And that's yeah, you know, that's very much at the center of the of the story as it goes on. Um, again, you know, there are, there are reveals coming that, that that sort of play into this, and I don't want to I don't want to spoil. Right. But particularly particularly his relationship with the children is um, is going to be examined in the third arc, and there will be some surprising surprising beats and surprising reveals there. Mm -hmm. Well, Leo has some interesting abilities. I mean, early on, it seemed like he was limited to manipulating pressure waves. But as the series goes on, we find out that he can actually do a lot more, and that he's actually a lot more powerful. He can control the natural forces. Yep, he's pretty much, he's pretty much plugged into the universe. Yeah. Can you talk about those abilities and where the idea came from for those? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I guess I wanted him to to have a power that was very primal, very you know, sort of touching reality at a very fundamental level. Um, there is a reason, too, why it goes wrong, why, although he can, um, for example, absorb the heat and the, the pressure wave from a bomb, um, why afterward there is a, what he calls the, uh, the, the, the recoil or the fallout from that. Why, why those forces refuse to balance themselves in his body. Um, and there is payback. Uh, and that the reason why that is happening is tied into the origin of the powers um, and, and the way the powers work. So again, that's a, that's a reveal for the next, the next arc. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, powers that are fundamental to the way matter works but carry a huge, a huge risk, a suicide risk, uh, and, and a huge potential penalty. Right. So we talked a little bit about the, the big mystery. Um, and right now we know that Leo was this powerful superhuman named Requiem who lived this whole other life, but he doesn't have a real memory of being that person. But he has dreams of a, a woman named, um, 
is it Isa or Asa? Isa, yeah. Isa. So we've only seen really a few moments of Leo as Requiem, but it seems that this alternate life or alternate personality, whatever it is, is asserting itself more and more as the book goes on. Yep. So where did this idea for the dual identities uh, come from? Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's the hardest question to answer, where, where, where do your ideas come from? But I guess I've, I've become increasingly fascinated in recent years by the idea that um, there really is no core to our personalities. That our personalities are... Um, reactive and uh, ad hoc. You know, we, 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 we constantly find ourselves in situations that make us react against types, that make us do things that we don't think are in our repertoire. Um, there's a lot of social psychological um, data that sort of um, confirms this, that actually our situations change massively according to the situation we find ourselves in. I mean, it's a hackneyed example. But the way people went along with the Nazi regime in Germany, the way people who would have considered themselves entirely uh, moral and decent uh, and good um, found themselves collaborating with atrocities mm -hmm. and, and um, taking part in atrocities. Uh, there, there, there is a, a sort of a very, a very um, you know, mainstream opinion now in psychology that... Um, that there is no invariant core to personality, that actually we, we, we tell ourselves a story about who we are, and that story becomes our personality. We try to, to create the sense, we try to create for ourselves the reassuring sense that we are consistent and coherent as people, but we're really not. So, so, so I guess um, that was one of the, that was definitely one of the things that fed into suicide risk. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, you know, it's a variant on the sort of doppelganger myth, the, uh, you know, the myth, the myth that somewhere out there there is a, a version of us that is, that is not us. And you know, we might come face to face with someday. Mm -hmm. The monster that wears our face. Right. There is, of course, there is, of course, one person who does recognize Leo for who he is, and that's, um, Dr. Maybe. So for the first time, Leo meets Dr. Maybe just before the arrest. Dr. Maybe looks looks into his eyes, is kind of making psych, uh, uh, telepathic contact with him and sort of recoils and says, my God. Um, and we don't know yet why that was. But um, right. yeah, he's the, he's the only one who's had that, that moment of recognition. Are we going to have more of uh, Dr. Maybe coming up then? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, he's he's, um, he's quite quite heavily involved in the, in the third arc. Um, and he's going to be a, a recurring character. Mm. Um, and he's he's nastier and more dangerous than we've seen. In fact, he's um, he's a really, really bad piece of work. Well, you've got some pretty bad characters in there right now, so I'm interested to see yes. <laughs> where that goes. Well, going back to the dual identity, I think it's a clever way to present Leo with a choice because he could either be Leo or he could be this Requiem character in this world that's decidedly turning bad, it seems like this world is, is makes it easy to embrace evil. And he seems like he's the one super being who might have a, a shot to fight against becoming corrupted. Yeah, uh, and it is a knife edge. You know, yeah, we got we got that bit where he's talking to the scene where he's talking to um, Christina to just the feeling, and she says, you know, sometimes you save the world. You know, I, I, I've seen this play out. 
a lot of times and sometimes you're the person who makes the difference and sometimes you're not. Although you remember she also said that Tracy would be involved in that. Right. That's true. Um, I also find it really interesting when he gets his powers, he actually makes the situation worse because he awakens his abilities and he draws the bad guys to him. And they aren't in the yeah. to crush hands like they did with uh, his friend there. They're, they want to crush the world. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the idea of um, a, a group of supervillains sort of deciding to become a government, deciding to create a state, a rogue state of their own was, uh, was something that I found very appealing. Yeah, that, that uh, if you had powers on that sort of scale, why would you need to rob banks? You, 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 would, uh, you would be creating your own, your own status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there, 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 there is a sense, isn't there, that um, from the moment when Leo gets the powers, he's kind of, I mean, he, he's, he obviously he is making that initial choice, but that initial choice takes away uh, a lot of his power to choose from then on because there are so many uh, unintended consequences which just keep on, uh, keep on hit, hitting him. Yeah, he's he's the catalyst for a lot worse stuff down the road. Yep. Um, and in the third arc, you'll see that um, he has been the catalyst in, in that way in the past as well. This isn't the first time it's happened. Like, sorry, I, don't, I, don't, I won't spoil, but... Uh... Oh, yeah, don't spoil. So uh, you talked a little bit about this super team that wants to take over a nation, and they're called Nightmare Scenario, and they're uh, led by Prometheus. Um, it's the Yucatan that they actually take over uh, with help from Leo. So what went into developing the team? How did you select the abilities and the characters that you wanted on a team that could could take over a nation? I, I was trying very hard to um, to come up with like variations on, on the common themes. You know, so many superpowers have been done lots and lots of times. Um, and, and it's hard to find powers that are going to seem genuinely, uh, genuinely original. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think Cage was the the one I was most happy with in Nightmare Scenario. You know, this guy who who basically is a a living containment uh, pod for the demons of hell. He has all of these sort of um, these monstrous entities living inside him, and he can let them out on a short leash. And they will do his bidding up to a point. Um, and I like uh, just the feelings, kind of very, very analog, uh, uh, sen- you know, extra senses. You know, the fact that she can see the future, but she sees um, she sees all of these false futures as well, and she doesn't always know which of the uh, which of which are going to be the real ones. Um, yeah, I, I was I was looking for stuff that would look and feel a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I was quite pleased with uh, with Plain Jane as well. You know, this woman who sort of generates um, sheer planes, like one-dimensional, um, no, two-dimensional planes of force that just just sever anything in their path. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I liked that uh, that she she was kind of a, kind of drawn to Leo, or drawn to uh, to the I guess the requiem side of Leo, who she thinks Leo is. And what about Prometheus? That guy is pretty cold. Yeah, he's cold. He's you know he, he he's incredibly ambitious. He's incredibly ruthless, um, and he has a, a you know a formidable set of powers. It's, not, it's super strength and invulnerability, and he can sort of become this this kind of flame elemental. Um, so it's uh, out of the five, he's the the one who's kind of 
operating, I guess, on on Leo's on Requiem's level, mm-hmm. and therefore we build to build to the inevitable um, confrontation between the two the two men. Yeah, I mean his flame powers they're way more powerful than say a human torch who just goes flame on and he's got fire all around him. He seems like he could easily just burn people to nothing. Yep. Uh and, and he doesn't scruple to do so. No. Although there is this moment when he um yeah, when when Leo is talking about the death of the uh the, the middle aged uh housewife and mother, the one who plain Jane um kills in issue seven and Prometheus says, you know, that, that, that wasn't her, that, that wasn't me, that was her. And Leo says, yeah, but you, you gave her your blessing and you preached a sermon on it afterwards. You know, you used it for, for propaganda purposes. Right. So yeah, Prometheus is a, is a, um, is a powerful personality, but underneath, underneath the power, I think there is a, you know, there's an edge of like narcissism and weakness, weakness in the sense of, um, yeah, you know, he's somebody who's a, who's a little bit vain, a little bit self-regarding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's em- eminently dislikable, I think. Now, are we going to learn more about the backstories for all of the uh, nightmare scenario? Not for all of them, no. But we will see some of them again, um, and and we will see we will see how their past ties into Requiem's past. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's coming up quite soon, actually, in issue eleven. Okay. All right. Well, so one of the important components of suicide risk is how the characters are affected by getting their powers, like we talked about, um, not just physically, but emotionally. And um, you also mentioned issue five, which uh, really hit home uh, when we shifted gears and we saw this powerless, abused woman named uh, Ada Robbins uh, get some amazing abilities. And she uses them basically to write her life. But by having this power, it changes her. She becomes a villain, and it was a great issue. But why did you decide that you wanted to introduce this new character in a standalone issue? Um, I think because if you if you if you iterate the theme twice, it becomes apparent that it's not just a it's not just a personal thing; it's a more universal thing. You know, like like um, like Leo, she finds that the powers come with um, with strange. Uh, Add-ons, uh, memories, and, and, and you know, dis- dislocations of experience. Um, because it's not just that she decides to become a villain. Um, her her entire motivation shifts. You know, initially she's a woman who, um, I mean, in, in a way, she's not that dissimilar to Leo, except that she's she's kind of a lot more passive and, and downtrodden. But you know, family is her focus, mm-hmm. and, and although her family are more, you know, more selfish and, and more manipulative. Than Leo, she cares very deeply for her children. She even cares for her scumbag, um, cheating husband. And at, yet, at the end, we see her taking decisions which are actually sort of definitely not in her children's best interest. We see her shoot um, her son um, right. in order to, to to sort of to punish him. Sorry, Mark, then I just have to turn my phone off. Yeah, no um, problem. And again, turn off. Okay, there we go. Um, and so, so yeah, that that it, it's it's asking that same question again. You know, what 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 is happening here? Because clearly, it's not just the power corrupts. It's that there's, there's been with the power has come a complete a complete change of perspective uh, and a complete change of um, of the the, the 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 kind of basic building blocks of her identity. It's like someone's taken her apart and put it put it back together in a different mm-hmm. in a different shape. 
Well, and it's the it's the circumstances that she was in, you know, before she got the powers that also kind of goes into how she's going to handle them. Yes, I mean, even more than Leo, she's someone who uh, you know is trapped in a in a in an unbearable situation and uses the powers to to get free from it. Mm-hmm. But um, but in the process, she kind of gives up everything that had been important to her up to that point. Right. Yeah. So she she gets she gets her wishes, but um, they're not her wishes anymore. The person who's doing the wishing has has changed, has moved. Um, it's that I think, and that, and that and that's the you know that's the mystery that we're sort of um, leaning hard on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Now, are we going to see that character again in the book? Yes. Yeah, we will see um, instant access. Um, Ada's super super, uh, super identity again, both in flashbacks and in real time. Mm-hmm. Are we going to get additional one shots that focus on other characters? Yes, we are, but um, I don't want. I, I was sort of a little bit anxious not to fall into a into a pattern that where each of the one-offs would just be another another vignette, another cameo mm-hmm. of a new character. So issue 10 is a one-off, but actually it goes back to Jed and Haley, the uh, the people who are selling the powers. Huh. And it's more about it's more about their experience, uh, and it's about the origins of the P1, the device they use to give people powers, um, and about the, the you know what's going on between them as a couple. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Which again starts starts to starts to play into the bigger picture. Yeah, because I was wondering if, I mean, it seems like that's the only device that really activates powers. But when I first started reading it, I thought that you know this is something that they could get from multiple people. But I guess issue ten is going to shed some light on on that. Yeah, it is. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed, but there's a, a moment in issue seven. When the Mexican policemen are talking about, you know, the the, the arrival of nightmare scenario, one one of the cops says, um, "This is definitely happening, but it's only happening in the U.S. and it's mostly the southwest of uh, of the U.S. It's mostly sort of California, that sort of area." Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is Jed and Haley with their little uh, little magic wand are basically they are they're they're, they're at the core of everything that's happening, hmm. um, and clearly. They're not the sharpest tools in the box. No, they're they're, um, <clears throat> they're they're kind of ridiculously mismatched when you look at the uh, the super beings they're creating. Um, so there is a there is a story there, obviously, in terms of how they came to to be in possession of the P ones, um, and where it, where it was before it was with them. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm wondering why doesn't one of the super powered characters just take it from them? Good question. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> it seems like it would be easy for somebody to just take them out. The, 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 there is a there is another kind of component though. The P the P one is um, is not much used by itself. There's something else that you need to have. Hmm. Because again, again, if you if you think back to issue one, the point where they where, where Leo says give me powers, Haley says it doesn't work like that. Ah. And Jed says, well it, "Well, it might, you know, test him out and see if he's um, see if he's compatible." And they do, and he is, and they're surprised. Um, not everybody can can have this um, right. this deal. It, 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 in fact, there are the vast majority of people it wouldn't work for. So again, that's uh, that's part of the part of the big mystery. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we haven't mentioned um, your artist in the book, Elena Casagrande. How did you end up working with her uh, on the series? Well, it was Boom who, Boom Jasper, my my editor, uh, I read this from the book, who who put it together. Um, I was familiar with Elena's work, um, mostly through Angel. I have to admit, um, I hadn't hadn't at that time read the issues of Hulk um, that she drew, mm-hmm. but um, I'd seen it in my her work on Angel. And uh, Daphne says, "Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't it be cool to uh, to have a tryout for Suicide Risk?" And I said, "Yes." Um, Elena started out by drawing um, the, the five villains who Leo meets right at the start, um, and also Leo himself. And I love the sketches. And I, I, yeah, I find her very, very enjoyable to work with. She's a great collaborator. Um, she's full of ideas for the look of the book. I mean, I think she's um, she's made the, uh, the, the the way that the, the superpowers work extremely visual um, and extremely striking. Oh yeah, I really like the way she draws demons that come out of cage. Yes, <laughs> I think that's the best part of her art. I, I totally agree. But I loved you know, right right back at the start the the, the, the sort of supervillain fight that the cops are um, that Leo and Leo and his fellow cops are drawn into. I, I thought you did a great job of just making it seem like um, this is total chaos. This is a, a gigantic shitstorm, and everything is uh, everything is is up for grabs. Yeah, the, the very, very kinetic art and very exciting. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it seems like she can do most of the books because Joelle did issue five, but uh, other than that, Elena's done all the other issues. And then that, and that's um, that's how we aim to carry on. Yeah, the, the, there will be a, um, a standalone issue every four or five issues, which will be a different guest artist, but Elena will carry on doing the, uh, the arcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that format. I, I, I hope she'll stay on for the uh, for the whole run of the book. I think I think it's a great format. Yeah, it's it, uh, it, it kind of allows you to have the best of both worlds. You know, you you uh, yeah you have a visual identity which is consistent, but you can still play games within that. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing we haven't talked about is the fact that Suicide Risk is really your first monthly book outside of Marvel and DC. Um, what is it like for you to have the freedom to create this new world as opposed to working on characters for the big two? Um, I, I guess it scratches a different itch. Um, I, I, I've talked a lot in many interviews about how much I love the X-Men characters, and, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's true. I, I, I'm working with them again at the moment on um, No More Humans, you know, the X-Men graphic novel. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I, I, I love them because they were a big part of my childhood. They were a big part of um, my young adulthood as well. It was the X-Men who drew me back into reading comics at the time when I'd stopped, at the time in my, in my teens when I'd stopped. Um, so you know, th- there's something very, very special about uh, working, adding adding chapters to a story that you read and were enthralled by as a child. But obviously, the reality of working on a franchise book is that um, you you have to negotiate. There are some things that you um, that you would like to do that you can't because the characters are in, are in use elsewhere. Um, you have to ne- negotiate around shared events, which is you know. It, it's it's um it's fun as well as uh, as well as difficult but it can be difficult um for example there was a, a story i wanted to do that would have involved cassandra nova but it was at the time when um joss was using her joss Whedon was using her in astonishing mm-hmm. and so i had to um i had to find a, di- a different way of, of sort of making my story articulate um whereas if you're creating your own mythology out of whole cloth 
then obviously um, you, you, you're, you're beholden to no one and you can take it in whatever direction you like. So it's a different, a different kind of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I do, I, lo- I love a good superhero story. I think you know, super, superhero stories are a genre that originated in comics and that still works better in comics than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the best superhero movies are not as good as the best superhero comics. I agree with that. It did something I do take pleasure in, and uh, it's very cool to be doing it for Boom because uh, you know, the, the people at Boom are very, uh, very passionate about comics, and I think very, um, mm-hmm. very much prepared to take risks uh, with formats and with um, with genres and with, you know, with the, the medium um, as a whole. They've they're grown incredibly in, in, in a, a very short space of time, and they're putting out um, a, a very, a very rich and diverse line of books. I feel very comfortable there. Yeah, no, it must be exciting to work for a company that's growing so exponentially um, and being a part of building up the core of uh, their universe of books. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, and yeah, my editors on the book, Daphne and uh, Matt Gagnon, uh, Daphne is the, is the series editor and Matt is kind of like the uh, the group editor. Mm-hmm. They're, um, they're, they're just really, really, uh, they, they're great people and they're great editors. I trust their instincts and it's been very rewarding sort of um, building the story with them, building the the story universe with them. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like you have a good relationship because like you said in the beginning, you know, when you first pitched it, it was a different book and then they said, oh, maybe you should take it in this direction and I think it's worked out fantastically. So, Yeah, if if, if I think back on my career in comics, um, the, the best the best work I've done is with editors who've been prepared to question the premises of the stories that I'm, that I'm pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the worst work I've done is where the first draft is the last draft, you know, where, where, um, where the editors were more laissez-faire, more relaxed and more, more prepared to just let me, um, let me make, make my own speed. I think you need, you need an editor to like get attuned to what you're trying to do and then ask the tough questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you mentioned how much you liked uh, superhero books. Did you grow up reading superhero stories? Yeah, yeah, I really did. Um, and the first comics I ever read were British uh, anthology comics. We used to have a great tradition of um, uh, humor books, gag books, um, for, for younger readers, the Beano, the Dandy, the Sparky, uh, Wither and Ships, uh, Beezer, Topper. There used to be dozens of them when I was a kid. But you graduate from them um, onto either British adventure comics or American superhero comics. And I was born in 59, so 64, 65 onwards. It was the era when the first black and white Marvel reprints were becoming available in the UK. And we we, we also got the original books coming over because I lived in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liverpool was a, a very, very important uh, port city. And apparently, comic books used to come across from America as ballast um, in, in ships. So Liverpool was actually it was the best place to be if you read comics because all these books would be on sale huh. in newsagents in Liverpool that were not available elsewhere in the um, in the country. So I, I devoured the Marvel stuff, I devoured the DC stuff, uh, but also Dell, Gold Key, Ace. Um, all of those books were sort of floating around, and I just read whatever I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have uh, favorite uh, characters from DC or Marvel? 
yes, I do, but they 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 change. They tend to change a lot. I mean, I I, I love the X Men. I love the Fantastic Four. Um, who else? I mean, on the DC side, uh, I've always been a big Batman fan. Um, I like Superman if he's done well. Um, I loved Grant Morrison's All Star Superman, for example. Oh yeah, that's good. Um, less less keen on some of the the sort of um, the second tier characters. I guess like I said, I always liked the big team books, and I remember as a kid getting hold of the first. Um, Justice League, Justice Society crossover, you know, the Crisis on Earth 1, Crisis on Earth 2 story, and just being completely blown away by it. The idea that these characters existed in multiple forms which was, was enthralling. Mm-hmm. And the scope of it, too, which is something that you are applying to your book, Suicide Risk, it's a huge, epic scope. Yeah, and the sense that it was um, it was getting bigger and bigger as you were reading it. You know, this was an expanding universe. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, you're you're well known for plotting out your stories in advance. Can you talk a little bit about how you work on stories? What's your process for structuring and layering a project like Suicide Risk? I guess um, what what I tend to do is, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a there's a core idea or a set of core ideas that the story is built around. Um, you tend to sort of plan out the first year of stories in obsessive detail. Um, because when you pitch it, that's kind of like the entry point. Um, and I think you've got to know the ending of the story. Because I, I, I always think in terms of endpoints. I don't think I've ever pitched anything that was completely ongoing. You know, there's always been like um, uh, a, sen- a sense of moving towards a, a big climax. I, I did this on Hellblazer. I did it on X-Men. You know, I'll, I'll have like a half a dozen arcs that sort of um, get closer and closer together that, that, that ultimately turn out to um, be converging on the same end point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I, think, I think I plan the beginning in detail, I plan the ending in detail, and I have a broad sense of how the middle will work. But um, there's, there's almost no point in, in being prescriptive about the, the middle bit because what happens is when you start to write the early arcs, a hundred good ideas are going to come to you, which will then pay off um, in the middle section. So as you work towards your end, and you're working in all this new stuff, these new characters, new themes, um, new plot points that just come because they come. Um, so it's a, it's a mixture of, um, of serendipity and, and, and careful planning. Mm-hmm. Do you know how long the story is going to go for? Um, not um, not as not as closely as I did with say Lucifer. I, I, I would I would like it to be. You know, I, I, there's, there's good, let me put it this way. There's going to be a huge climax that is about um, still about two years away. Wow. After that, it could easily go on. I mean, that would be a climax that would pay off pretty much everything that we built that we will have built up to that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I'm, this is this is if. if you know, if the book continues to sell well and if Boom continues to be satisfied with be happy with, with what I'm doing. So so around about issue thirty something, the mid thirties, there would be a, a huge a huge climactic event, which would change everything. And after that it would be perfectly possible to carry on telling stories. Um possibly with Leo still as the protagonist, possibly carrying passing on that torch to somebody else. His daughter, perhaps. 
I could not possibly say. <laughs> but yeah, it would be possible to 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 to, to rotate in another um, another protagonist. And yeah, you know, I, I would I would love to I would love to get to that point and be able to do that because it's a big it's a big universe and uh, there are lots of corners to it that um, that would be cool to explore. So three years to the first big climax, and then I guess we'll see what we'll see. I mean, it is really big. Is there any chance that the characters or stories in Suicide Risk could spin off into something else? Could there be a Carrie-verse? Good God. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess in theory, there's no reason why they couldn't. Um, that's, a, that's, that's a bloody mind-bending. <laughs> it would be... It would be it would be nice if that happened. I mean, yes, there are there are lots of characters who we could um, revisit or who we could sort of um, expand to include. I mean, I would read a nightmare scenario book <laughs> before all this happened. <laughs> I love stories about villains. I don't think there's enough. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'd like to write. I, I would love to do a, a mini series about Ada. I, I think uh, I think she's a character who who would be worth. But she will be coming back into the into the main story. Oh yeah, yeah, I would definitely read that as well. Um, now, is Suicide Risk something that? When did you conceive of the book, Mike? Is is it something that happened a long time ago, or is it fairly recent that you came up with the ideas for it? Um, it was about 2009 that I first started noodling with the ideas, um, and I pitched a, a sort of early version of the book to Matt Gagnon at that point. And we began to talk about, you know, how it might play out as a monthly. And then I got involved in other things, and we sort of drifted out of touch for a while. Uh, and then I came back at him, I guess, about two years later, maybe only maybe only eighteen months later, mm-hmm. and pitched it again. And and that time we got sort of more seriously into it, and um, that, that that was the the process that eventually led to the book being commissioned. Mm-hmm. So so I guess um, yeah, it was in my head for. Two or three years before, before I went anywhere with it. At that, at that time, it had a completely different title as well. It was called Fault Line. Oh, I was going to ask you about the title. I thought that it meant if he used his powers too much, that he might die. But it doesn't seem like that has happened. So, how did you decide on the title Suicide Risk, and what, what does that really mean? Um, I, 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 yeah, I mean, the, the, the most direct reference is the, the first few times that Leo uses his powers. Um, the, the, the backlash is so severe that it seems like he might he might die from it. You know, the, the, when the lightning bolt hits him, and then when uh, when he he uses power to, to to make the water mains erupt, and and there's a time when water flees away from him, and he he almost dies at first. Um, so it was referencing that, but it's also referencing this. Um, we were talking earlier about the um, the loss of identity, the fragmentation of identity, mm-hmm. the fact that when you get the powers, your sense of self changes. So in that sense, there is a risk of um, not not death, but but like complete loss of self. Hmm. So it's suicide, suicide, psychological suicide. I like that. So how is the the book doing? Is it is it selling pretty well now for Boom? Um, I don't know. I think I think it's selling respectably, and it's getting uh, it's getting mostly positive reviews, and, and Boom seemed to be uh, to be happy with it. And yeah, we, we initially had a contract for twelve issues, but we're we're past that point now, and, and we're sort of into um, heavy plotting for the second year. So um, I'm assuming that things are things are going well. That's great. It, it's it's hard. It's always hard to get um, 
numbers for a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so issue nine is coming up, and that's the big finale of the the nightmare scenario arc. Yeah. Uh, what can we expect from the next issue without really giving anything away, and and from the series going forward? Um, well, as I say, ten, ten, 10 goes back to Jed and Haley, uh, and there are some big reveals there. Um, the arc that starts with 11 is called Family Reunion, which um, gives you some sense of where we're, where we're coming from. Uh, so it's about it's taking Leo back to, back to the family, which, when you think about it, hasn't happened since um, the, the first couple of issues, really, since he, since he left. You know, he made that fateful trip up the coast. He hasn't been home. Um, yeah, and I'm excited to see how that plays out because he's had a little some infidelities. Yes. Um, yeah. That 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 uh, the, the end the end of eight when he when he says to to Jane, "Well, it's not going to matter because I'm not going home." It's uh, that that's what, probably one of the darkest moments I've written so far. <laughs> I know. I, I find myself saying, "No, don't do it. Don't do it." <laughs> She's not worth it, Leo. <laughs> um, possibly we'll see the the effects of of Leo's time with this supervillain team. Yep, we will. Um, and and, uh, and we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how the the family dynamic has shifted. Um, and we'll have some more reveals about um, about Tracy's powers, which are now manifesting themselves. Um, and sort of coming out of that. We'll be learning some more about who Requiem is or who Requiem was, um, and how Leo can be Requiem. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to see a whole issue that's just set in the the reality with Requiem and all those characters. Uh, issue twelve is going to be mo- mostly there. Uh-uh. It's not, not entirely, but mostly. So there are lots of lots of sort of flashbacks to. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost a kind of not not an origin for Requiem, but uh, but certainly certainly a a, a lot more a, a clearer sort of focus on it than we've had before. Mm-hmm. Well, great, Mike. It's been really fun talking to you about uh, suicide risk. I can't wait to find out what happens. Um, I know that you got a lot of other projects in the works. I mean, Unwritten's being relaunched. Um, we talked about your announcement on the X Men No More Humans book, and I know you got a new novel coming out, The Girl with All the Gifts. In January, I think. So 2014 looks like it's going to be a big year for you. Did you want to say anything about those upcoming releases? Yeah, um, I'd like to add, add a couple to that list as well because uh, I'm still doing um, Houses of the Holy, um, this this horror book for horror horror story for the Madefire app, mm-hmm. uh, which is a free free downloadable app for um, iPad and iPhone. Um, I'm, I'm doing this this story set in um set against the rise of Nazism, nineteen thirties Berlin. And it's about a, a a vampire girl um and a house which is um which is also a sort of evil um entity. And I'm having fun with that. Dave Kendall is doing gorgeous painted art for us. Um I haven't seen that. How far along are you on that? Um we've done about um six episodes. Um it's coming slowly because Dave is being, you know, incredibly painstaking. And when you see when you see the art, you'll understand why it's coming slowly. Uh, Made fire allows you to sort of navigate within some of the frames, mm-hmm. so it's possible to see different aspects of the um, of the picture space. Uh, and the picture space is in some place in some places three dimensional. Um, it, it, it's it's pretty amazing stuff. 
Um, I have to get the girl with all the gifts um, coming out in January uh, in the UK, in June in the US, and I've also um, I've co-written uh, two novels now with my wife and daughter, well, my, my wife and our daughter Louise, um, and the second one comes out next June. It's called House of War and Witness, and it's um, a ghost story set against the backdrop of um, the War of the Austrian Succession, mm-hmm. sort of big uh, upheaval in Middle Europe, uh, west of the Middle Europe, uh, in, in the 1740s. Oh, it's great that you were doing uh, books with your family. I believe you read from one of the books that you did with them at uh, the Fable Town and Beyond. That's right. I read some um, City of Silk and Steel, the, fir- the first, the first collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's amazingly rewarding um, because I, I think collaboration sensitizes you to your own storytelling, uh, and, and it, it, you come out of it in a different place, and you come out of it more prepared to to take risks, I guess, to do experiment. Um, but the other thing that, that's been going on for me this year, much, much more than ever before, is screenwriting. Um, I've written three movies in the last couple of years, um, all of which are still at a fairly early stage, but um, but they're, they're, they're coming on nicely. Um, I've done some TV work. I'm currently working on a, a TV series which of which I'm the creator um, and for which I would sort of have a showrunner role. Um, but, oh, you're a busy man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a wild time. <laughs> <laughs> can you say anything about these uh, movie and TV projects, or what they're about? I can say I can say things about a couple of them. Yeah, um, I mean, I did I did a, a vampire movie for Intrepid Pictures in the US. Um, it's called Dominion, and it's currently in casting. Um, and it's about a. Um, it also has a, a cop protagonist. It's a cop who is murdered in the line of duty and basically um, is resurrected in order to uh, to complete the investigation. Um, and, and uh, I'm doing the movie version of Girl with All the Gifts, I'm adapting my own novel um, to, to the movie format, and I'm doing a, a movie adaptation of a, a novel by Jonathan Tregal, Genesis, uh, which is a, an amazing sci-fi movie about genetic experimentation, genetic modification, um, and, and what that's going to mean to society. Wow, those all sound great. I've, I've had a blast with them. I'm, I'm really, really enjoying myself. Um, picking up a new skill set, and uh, I, I think working in different media, it stops you from getting stale. It stops you from just like retreading the old stories you've already written. Hmm, like exercising different muscles. Yes, yeah, very much like that. Just don't give up comics, Mike. I never would. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no intention of doing that. <laughs> Great. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about suicide risk. Thanks, Mark. I know it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure been a pleasure here too. Take care, Mike. Cheers, Mike. All the best. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Colloquium with Mike Carey. You can find out more about Mike and his upcoming projects on Facebook or Twitter. His Twitter handle is at MichaelCarey191. You can also visit his website at MikeAndPeter.com. For more about Colloquium, visit the Sequart Research and Literacy Organization website at sequart.org. Along with the cast, you'll find reviews, documentaries, scholarly articles, and many unique books that discuss and analyze your favorite comic book creators and series. Huge thank you to John Rafano, who wrote and performed the Colloquium theme song. John is the guitarist for the post-rock metal band Sonnet. 
You can listen to the band's first full-length album, Known Flood, at sonnet.bandcamp.com. Until next time, chums.